All right. All right. Welcome back to the Corinthians seminar. This is going to be part two on the second half of First Corinthians 12. And just to recap a couple of things that we saw last time, um, we saw that one of the overriding themes of Corinthians is this idea of um, the upside down nature of God's power, the upside down nature of the kingdom. Um, we were talking about how uh, the common good is sort of underpinning all of this whole section. What is good for the whole group? Uh, we talked about uh, the word gifts and the word manifestations and uh, the other words used in 1 Corinthians 12. And uh, again, Gordon Fee uses those words interchangeably. I do too. So uh, if you like the word manifestations, great. It's a good word for that describes uh, how, how apparent uh, the power of God can be in operation. If you like the word gifts, that's great. It it identifies God as the one who gives and who bestows grace upon us so we can evidence his power. And so um, we talked about the nine uh, listed in 1 Corinthians 12, that that's not an exhaustive list, um, that there are other lists in 1 Corinthians. Later in 1 Corinthians 12, there's lists in Romans 12, there's a list in Ephesians 4, there's um, sort of a sh short categorization in 1 Peter 4. So there's all these different uh, ways of looking at the ways that God uh, moves in and through his people, uh, both in their individual lives and in the assembled body of believers. And so uh, we're going to continue unpacking that by getting into the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And again, I'm going to be using a lot of Gordon Fee's commentary on 1 Corinthians, which is, in my mind, excellent for a number of reasons. Um, and so I'll just leave it at that. If you want to know more about Gordon Fee, Google him. He's, um, he has a great witness, and um, he, he lived a very successful life, Christian life, following Christ, and, and endeavoring to explain um, the Bible to people. So... With that in mind, uh, we're going to turn to the body analogy here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And again, we'll be looking at unity and diversity. And this is the overarching uh, theme here of chapter 12, that there's unity and diversity. Uh, we are all different. God has, um, he works in us in different ways, and yet um, we each uniquely uh, can, can see God work in our lives. And then when we come together, we can... Uh, experience all those things together as a community. So in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, it says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. So here Paul is transitioning from uh, talking about the gifts or manifestations uh, to talking about the individuals in the Corinthian church. And he relates the church to the example of the human body. So he's still talking about how the spirit moves in the church. He's just sort of transitioning what he's talking about. So uh, the implication, because he's still talking about the spirit and how it moves, is that the spirit moves differently in different members of the church, and yet the church is still to be unified. And that's going to continue to be dealt with in this analogy as we continue through. In verse 13, it says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. 
and all were made to drink of one spirit. So again, one spirit is emphasized here. This verse is designed to emphasize the unity that we have in Christ. We were all baptized into the same body, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. We, were, uh, we all were made to drink of one spirit. One thing I wanted to point out here in this context that is interesting is that um, some have taught that when a Christian gets born again, God individually creates a new spirit for them right then and there. And sometimes, uh, you know, verses like Ephesians 2.10 get used to support that idea. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works. Um, that verse is in the context of the whole body. You know, first, uh, Ephesians 2 is in the context of the old man and the new man. It's in the context of Jews and Gentiles, you know, people, people groups, again, is sort of the, the, what's under purview there. So the created in Christ Jesus, we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works. Um, you know, the whole body is God's masterpiece, his workmanship. So this verse doesn't really support the idea of special spirit creation at the new birth. Uh, even if we take it individualistically, even if you want to say, okay, I get it, you know, collectively we're his workmanship, but also individually, aren't we masterpieces? Yes, yes, we are masterpieces individually, sure. But even then, the created in Christ Jesus does not have to mean spirit. It does not have to mean spirit there. It could mean a number of different things. Um, does not have to be spirit. The frequent language of the New Testament for uh, the spirit is that the Spirit is poured out upon believers. Uh, you get that in Acts 2.33 on the day of Pentecost. You get that in Acts 10.45. You get it in Titus 3.6. Um, or similar water language, like is used here, all were made to drink of one Spirit. So this language envisions a large container of Spirit that God can pour out or cause us to drink of. It's not um, necessarily special creation. So I just want to point that out, that for Paul, the Spirit is a unifying thing. It is something that we all have in common, um, which seems to ride up against the idea of this individualistic creation of Spirit. Now, I do think that it is clear, both in this context and in other contexts, that God works within our Spirit uniquely. That is absolutely clear, that we all function differently. We all have different giftings. Um, all those things are totally true. But what I'm saying is that it doesn't require us to believe in special creation of spirit uh, to get there. So, again, the context here is that despite the unity of the one spirit that we all share in, we all share in this one spirit, how that spirit works within us is unique to us. That's the big point here. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So this verse is designed to emphasize the unique ways in which God's Spirit works in each of the members. So we have uniqueness and we also have unity. Uh, Fee makes an excellent point uh, before he transitions to the rest of the chapter. He says, quote, What is disconcerting, however, is that what for Paul is the basis of unity, namely their common life in the Spirit, has in later times become the point of so much tension. Two things perhaps need to be emphasized. Number one, 
If the work of the Spirit appears to be the cause of disunity among some, it is certainly not the Spirit's fault. Our common fallenness, unfortunately, often causes both pride and suspicion or distrust to prevail when it comes to the work of the Spirit. And number two, nonetheless, unity is the result of our common life in the Spirit, not of our human machinations. Is it our lack of the Spirit that has forced us to attempt unity on other grounds? Paul saw the Spirit as the key to everything in the Christian life. It seems mandatory that such prevail again if there is to be effective Christianity in our day. But let the one who says that not force their own brand of spiritual unity on the church as simply another human machination. Our desperate need is surely for a sovereign work of the Spirit to do among us what all our programmed unity cannot, end quote. So what Fee is saying there is, is that Paul sees this, the Spirit as a unifying force. And unfortunately, in modern times, um, it has caused disunity because of the different perspectives on it, maybe, or the different ways people want to, um, to see it in operation in the church. And that is really the heart with which I present this information is as a starting point to have some open conversations about where people are so that our life in the Spirit can be a unifying force, um, but that we also can make space for the Spirit of God and not just uh, limit ourselves to human machinations, as Fee puts it, or in, to put it in um, simpler words, uh, the things that we think of, the things that we determine to do. Um, our human way of doing things, that if we let the Spirit move in our meetings, that God would surprise us in wonderful ways and that um, that would bless the whole assembly. So I'm going to read now verses 15 to 20 and then comment on those together. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So, you know, again, to be clear about this, you know, the, the over arching emphasis of this chapter is the idea that there is unity and that there is uniqueness, that there are things that each of us has been specifically called to do and gifts that we have been specifically given to accomplish those goals and that there are um, things that other people do that we don't do, you know, that there's uniqueness, uh, but that we're all unified, that we're all unified because we all have the same spirit we all have the same goal to magnify Christ and to follow, follow him to our Father, who's the source of all good things. So, you know, just to, to break this out of the analogy and to be more literal about it, you know, not, not all of us are going to teach up front. You know, many of us are going to teach up front, but not all of us are going to do that. That, that doesn't mean that the people that, that don't teach up front are any less important than, you know, the people that do teach up front. Um, the Bible is clear that we're all, we're all the same. We're on the same playing field. We're all sons and daughters of God. Um, not all of us are going to be the best or be, you know, gifted, if we want to use that term, at having people over for dinner, at hospitality. You know, we're not all going to be excelling at that. Uh, not all of us are going to deep dive into the biblical languages or cultures. You know, that's just not 
our interest, our focus. That's not uh, where we live day to day. You know, we're going to be interested in other things. We're going to be doing other things. Uh, not all of us are going to exhibit tongues with interpretation or prophecy frequently or at all. Even if we admit that we can do it, we may not do it in meetings. Um, not all of us are going to heal someone miraculously or be healed miraculously. Not all of us are gifted administrators or managers for church functions. But we all have one thing in common, and that is we all have a purpose to serve in the body as God has called us to with the gifts that he has given us. Now, if God called you to do something and that whatever that is isn't happening, maybe that's the time to pursue that. Honestly, you know, if God's putting something on your heart and you haven't been pursuing it, you know, then that that might be a problem. Um, but the main point that Paul is making here is that we need everyone functioning together at their best for the body to work as God designed it to work. You know, we need eyes, we need ears, we need hands, we need feet, we need noses, and so on. If everyone in the body were like me, the body would be a very boring place to be. I would not want to be a part of that body if everyone was like me. And that's not how God designed it to be. We are all designed to be different, and there's beauty in that. There's God's design in that. Now let's read verses 21 to 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So the body application takes a different turn here in verse 21. Now, instead of focusing on the need for each member to be present and to be working, sort of like a, an accountability section um, in the body for it to function as designed, uh, we turn to the idea that certain members are um, more important than others. And the answer is absolutely not. The, um, no matter what member of the body uh, we are, whether we're the eye or the ear or the hand, whatever the case might be, um, we are all equally important. Fee has an interesting point here about verse 21. He says, quote, the stench, it should be noted, is not simply in their pride. One can sometimes tolerate that in the aristocracy. Rather, it is both in their self-sufficiency and in the, their demeaning of others to the point of saying, I have no need of you, end quote. So, you know, we cannot get into a position where we um, put ourselves down and say that we're less significant, um, or we look at others and we say, I'm more important than you, I'm more significant than you. Uh, both postures are bad. And so what we see here is, is that um, we are going to serve different functions. We are going to be gifted differently and in different ways, but that God has done this on purpose, that God has provided for unity in the midst of our uniqueness, in the midst of 
how he's enabled us in different ways. So now um, we get to this last section, which really sort of fleshes this out a little bit more even. 27 to 31. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? Verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. So Paul now returns to the important point that each individual in the body is differently gifted, that God works in each member in varied ways. Uh, when he transitions between the prior section, verses 21 through 26, to this section, this is what Fee says. Quote, According to the analogies themselves, that means, one, that there must be a greater acceptance of a variety of gifts in the church. A singular focus on one gift, be it tongues, prophecy, or healing in charismatic churches, or strictly cere cerebral gifts in others, destroys the diversity God intended for the body. But it also means, too, that in terms of people, we must stop negating others as less important than ourselves. That is to destroy unity, end quote. So what Fee is pointing out, and I think it's very, very helpful about this, is that uh, some church traditions have really heavily weighted uh, the charismatic evidences of the Spirit. You know, things like healing, things like the tongues with interpretation, potentially, things like prophecy or prophetic utterances. Um, so there are some churches that have elevated those giftings, those manifestations in the context of a church meeting or in someone's life and other church traditions have elevated the more cerebral understanding things like discerning of the text of the scripture um, or things like uh, a specific word of knowledge uh, related to some situation um, so some of the more cerebral uh, you know wisdom to handle certain situations or something like that the more cerebral gifts or the gift of teaching, for example, uh, something that someone can understand um, perhaps a little bit more easily with their five senses, uh, someone being a gifted teacher. Um, you know, there are some church traditions that have heavily skewed on that side and they do not allow for prophetic utterances. They don't allow for tongues with interpretation. They don't allow for uh, healings and miracles to happen today. Or if they do, they have them very infrequently. And what this is calling out is, is that God wants all these things. God wants all these things to be active in our churches. We should have all these things um, available. So some would read um, these sections of scripture and think of certain people with certain giftings or certain manifestations or certain ways that God's spirit would operate. And they would think negatively or positively about them based on their own tradition. And so I think, you know, this is a good, a good thing for us to think about, too, about how God wants us all to be functioning at our greatest potential with what he's given us and with what he continues to bestow upon us. Because I, I do personally believe that giftings and things can continue to grow, that we can pursue those things. That seems to be what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, specifically about prophecy, but just generally about spiritual matters. 
Um, and then here also in verse 31, earnestly desiring the higher gifts. You know, we should desire uh, the things that are appropriate for whatever situation we're in. And so we should not just elevate certain things because that's what we've been taught to elevate. Um, whether that's in our tradition or other people coming in from outside of our church, you know, that are uh, uncertain about some of these things. You know, speaking in tongues is a thing that gets talked about extensively in this, in this part of Scripture. It's a legitimate spiritual gift. It's a legitimate, it has a legitimate place in the worship service as we're going to unpack it more in the section in 1 Corinthians 14. So um, anyway, with all that in mind, um, you know, we want to, uh, we want to see everything that God has for us. That's, that's the, that's the thing that I gather from this. Um, and I think that that's, that's important that we're all in a position where we want all of what God has in store for us, no matter what it looks like, that we're humble and we're prepared for that. So in this section, in verses 27 through 31, uh, there is a second lifting of gifts um, or manifestations, and they're sort of jumbled together in, in sort of a, a weird way. Uh, you've got like offices, like apostle, prophet, teacher. Then you've got more charismata, uh, gifts or manifestations like miracles, gifts of healing. Uh, then you have um, helping and administering, which is unsure exactly, you know, there's some people that say one thing about that or another thing about that, but that sort of ways of serving, I think, would be the best way to put that. And then uh, various kinds of tongues there happens at the, at the end of that. Um, and so in the context, you know, verse 31 Paul uses the word charismata or charisma there, but um, it just seems odd that <laughs> Paul seems comfortable using the word gifts to like cover all of those different things. And we might want to, you know, pick, pick and choose like, okay, these are charismata. These are offices. These are ways of serving or something like that. Paul's fine with just blanket, blanketing that list with the word gifts. I think it's interesting. Uh, so what we're uncomfortable with, he wasn't, I guess, uncomfortable with. I want to point out too, and, and probably we've all heard this before, but uh, the questions in verses 29 and 30 are all rhetorical and all have in the Greek grammar an implied answer of no. So the question is, um, you know, are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. Those are the answers to the questions. And, and I observed this actually a while back, but Fee thankfully agreed with me on this. And I think it was really cool that the questions as they, they transition from the offices, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? None of us have a problem with that. We all understand that certain people are called with special uh, giftings uh, in the ministry category. We've, we've sometimes called them gift ministries. I think, I think is a fine term. Uh, and we all know that not everyone is an apostle, certainly. Not everyone is a prophet, certainly. Not everyone is a teacher. Nothing, there's no problem uh, with those. But then these other ones, we want to say that, yes, God could do them in anyone uh, that he so chooses. Uh, but these questions are not can. They're not can all work miracles, can all possess gifts of healings, can all speak with tongues, can all interpret. It's do. It's due. And so from a practical perspective, what that means is we can set aside the question of can someone do X, Y, or Z? Can, can, can. 
maybe. The answer is maybe. You know, God may work, uh, you know, a certain thing in everyone. God may have, there may be even specific manifestations like tongues or prophecy, which I think, and maybe interpretation of tongues we could sort of add to that list, um, that are quote-unquote universal gifts or quote-unquote universal manifestations that literally everyone who's ever been born again, God would have or could have, um, you know, inspired that in them if they had sought it or knew about it or whatever the case might be. Um, I don't know. I think the Bible doesn't really definitively answer that question um, the way that we would like it answered at least. But what I do think is that these, uh, these questions are worded do, 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 not can, can, can. So it's a different question. There are Christians who have lived and died and never saw a miracle uh, never possessed a gift of healing, never spoke with tongues, never interpreted tongues, and yet we're still uh, Christians. We're still legitimate followers of Christ. We will see them at the resurrection. We will see them and be with them in the kingdom of God. Um, just because someone has not experienced these things does not mean that they are not born again. So, you know, I think that that sort of settles that in my mind. Um and if you have a more expansive view of how God gifts people or, you know, gives people the chance to manifest his power, then that works great with your theology on that, too. Um, but I just want to point out that those those questions are there and it's implied that not everyone is going to do these things, either in, the, in their personal lives or in the meeting. So there's no pressure from my mind. There's no pressure. A new person comes to Christ. There's no pressure to get them to speak in tongues. There's no pressure to get them to interpret tongues. There's no pressure to have them manifest the, the spirit in any specific way. Uh, we want them, you know, we want the new person to come in to learn to follow Christ, uh, to see the example of how that is played out in the post-Pentecost world in the church and to grow into that. And, um, you know, that's going to look like the fruit of the spirit. That's going to look like, um, you know, love, joy, peace, uh, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, meekness, faith. That's what it's going to look like. Um, and maybe these other things will come uh, sometimes immediately. Sometimes tongues happens immediately upon conversion. Sometimes it doesn't. And, um, you know, there's a lot to be said about all that. That's for another day. So, again, um, I believe God can work any gift, any manifestation, whatever term you prefer, in any person. I think that is true. I don't want to limit God. I'm not going to limit God. But I just want to point out, again, the context of 1 Corinthians 12, especially here at the end, is about diversity. Diversity um, and unity. The unity is in the Spirit. The diversity is in how we live it out. How we live the life of the Spirit is going to look differently in each one of our lives um, and that, that means different giftings. I've mentioned before that there are other major gifts passages, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. And the context of all of these passages is that uh, the way that God works within us is different, that we are different. We manifest God's power in different ways and that God designed it that way. Now, I'm going to read those passages, um, and I think you'll see what I'm saying here, that, again, every time that the idea of gifts is mentioned, the primary focus, the primary point that's being made in each and every one of these passages is that we are unique, that God works within us uniquely, 
That means that we have unique gifts. God works within our spirit uniquely, that the unifying presence is the spirit. The diversity comes in how that spirit is manifested. So here's Romans 12, verses 4 through 8. It says, and it's going to sound very similar here to 1 Corinthians 12. It says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Verse 6 literally starts with the words, Having gifts, charismata, that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The Bible literally says in Romans chapter 12, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. There's no getting around the clear meaning of that. We have gifts that differ. We have different gifts. And if we look around, I think it's pretty obvious that that's the case. Uh, we have people in our church that are incredibly skilled organizationally. We saw it here at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, this idea of helping and administering. Um, we have people who are gifted in that in our church, and they have been called to perform that function in our church. That is what they do because God has gifted them in extraordinary ways organizationally. In something that we would tend to think of as a five senses skill, these people are supernaturally endowed with, I believe, that ability. And so they serve in that way. We have people who are excellent teachers. And in the coming months and years, uh, people are going to continue to be lifted up and put before the people who are excellent teachers. Um, and so that's, that has happened and will continue to happen. We'll have multiple teachers get up. But not all of us are teachers. Not all of us should teach. Uh, that's what the Bible actually says in the book of Hebrews. Uh, not all of you should be teachers. It literally says we shouldn't all be teachers. So, you know, just because one person teaches and another person doesn't, that, that's, we're not better. The teacher is not better than the person being taught. We all have a, a position and a place to, to have in the body of Christ. Um, and here, here in Romans 12, it says, um, if, if in prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity. So financial giving is a gift. The one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Um, people are, are strong in acts of mercy. People are strong in, in extending mercy to others. That is a supernatural gift that God gives where people can feel his presence through that mercy. That's a beautiful thing. And not all of us have it. And that's okay. God designed it that way. We have gifts that differ. Having gifts that differ. It's God's design. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 14. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. 
We all agree that some of us, perhaps even many of us, will not or ever function in any of these gifted ministry categories. Um, some of us, uh, some of us or some of the people that we know may have multiple ministries in, the, in these categories. Um, I would say only one person, Jesus, had all of them. Only he was an apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. He was a high priest. He was a king. You know, there's basically no good label you can't give Jesus. There's no good gift that wasn't bestowed upon Jesus. He's the one who had them all. He had all the gifts. Every single gift that God could give, Jesus had. Um, but the rest of us, that's not the way it is. Many of us will never experience uh, those specific giftings in our lives, as in we personally will fulfill those giftings. And those of us who do, it might be time-bound. Uh, there might be a period of time where we operate in a specific office, and but we may not for another period of time, or we grow into that office. Uh, there's all sorts of ways we can understand this, but the point, again, is we're not all going to have this. We have gifts that differ, and some of us don't ha even have any of those gifts. Um, so that's Ephesians 4. Then 1 Peter 4. As each has received a gift, use it to serve, this is verse 10, use to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. God's grace is varied. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter doesn't really list anything specifically, but he does delineate speaking gifts and serving gifts. And using simple language, and he doesn't, he doesn't complicate things. You know, uh, some people have said, you know, where, where Paul gives us books or paragraphs, Peter gives us a sentence. Using simple language, he implies that we have not necessarily received multiple gifts. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So, you know, the point here again is God's grace is varied. Um, we have different gifts. And again, that's God's design. It's God's design that we have different gifts, that we use them to serve in the strength that God supplies, as Peter said in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That is what, that's what we do. That's why we do it. But again, different gifts, different grace, different uh, ways, offices to serve, different functions in the body. These are all equivalently saying the same thing. Um, now, at the end of this teaching, I want to explicitly call something out and I you know I made it's been intentional I'm not really trying to polemicize our former teaching I'm you know not trying to argue against anyone living or dead I'm not really trying to indict any specific church or ministry that's not my point in any of the in any of what I'm recording the point is to share things that I have changed my perspective on and help understand hopefully a um, a more a biblically grounded way of reading Corinthians. But I am going to call out something specifically here at the end here because I think it's important that we acknowledge um, what we've been taught and the beautiful things about what we've been taught and then the unfortunate things about what we've been taught at times as we're reevaluating our beliefs. 
And so I'm gonna explicitly call something out and that is the phrase all nine all the time. That's what I was taught and I believed it, I taught it. And I believed it for a long time of my life. I probably believed it for like 30, 30 plus years of my life. I'm 37. So I just wanna point out that the phrase all nine all the time, it assumes a couple things. The first thing it assumes is it assumes that the list in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10 is meant to be exhaustive. And again, just looking briefly at Romans 12, looking briefly at the rest of 1 Corinthians 12, looking briefly at um, Ephesians uh, and, you know, other places in Scripture, it's not. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, those nine manifestations, that's not an exhaustive list of all things that God can do. It's very clear that that's not true. So that's one assumption that we have with all nine all the time. The second thing is that we can manifest God's power whenever we want to in these specific nine ways. And again, I conceded earlier that tongues may be an exception to this general rule, but the general rule is given in 1 Corinthians 12, 6 and 11, where it says explicitly that God is the one who energizes them. He's the one who empowers them using the language of the ESV. So what I'm saying is all nine all the time rests on two assumptions and both of them are false from my perspective. They're not biblically supported. There are more than nine manifestations or nine gifts. Again, across the whole Bible, maybe there's 25. I don't know. Who cares? I don't really push very hard on these lists even because I think that there's we can identify more ways that God works in Scripture than even those 25. There might be a hundred ways that God works or a thousand ways that God works. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't really matter how many ways that God works. It, it matters that he is working. He is working in your life. He is working in my life. That's the important part. The second part that we can manifest God's power whenever we want to is just absolutely false. You know, we, we are at the, um, we are reliant on God. We are reliant uh, on his empowering, whatever it is going to be. I cannot walk up to someone without revelation and say, you're going to be healed. If I do that, I'm not walking the way that God has laid out for us in scripture. I'm walking by my own understanding, false understanding of scripture. And so I just, you know, want to just point out again, all nine, all the time, I think that should be set aside. And I think we can, if you want to replace it with something, how about whatever God wants, whenever he wants it. Whatever God wants to do in your life, whatever he wants to work or affect in your life, whenever he wants it, whenever he decides it's the right time for him to work in your life, that's, I think, a better motto. It's a more humble way of approaching the Christian life. It's a more humble way of approaching God, and it's a more biblically grounded way of viewing 1 Corinthians 12. So I agree, we should be ready to manifest. That's our responsibility. Our responsibility is to be, to be ready to manifest, to be ready to go. But it's up to God to direct it. It's up to God to direct it. And that goes for our meetings too. We don't need to force the, force the envelope with, um, with certain things in our meetings. If all we're going to do is pray on a Sunday, if no one feels moved uh, to to speak in tongues and interpret or prophesy, that's fine. That's fine. 
And maybe someone in that crowd, maybe someone in the audience was neglecting the call of God in that moment, the pressing on the spirit to do something. Maybe that's true. Maybe someone missed it. But it's also possible that we needed to do something else that day, that God wanted to uh, focus on other aspects of our worship service that day. And we, we, don't, we don't need to force things. We should be ready for God to direct it. So that's a little bit there. When, by way of conclusion, I just want to talk about, by the end of chapter 12, the point, the point that we're getting to, the point that we want to, I want to conclude with, is that we should, as a community, desire that the best and most appropriate gifts come at the right time, that they're manifested at the right time. And as we're going to see in the next chapter, the foundational principle undergirding that pursuit is love. So what I'm basically pointing out is the same thing that Fee points out, which is love is not the most excellent gift, but rather it's the way to see what is the most excellent gift in this, the given situation. So what Paul's going to speak to more in chapter 14 is he's going to pick up the idea of the more excellent gifts. He's going to unpack that understanding for us in chapter 14. Uh, that's where he explicitly handles tongues and prophecy and compares them one to another in the context of a church meeting, but also implicitly, as we'll see in his private prayer life as well. So, in conclusion, what we've seen in chapter 12 is, is that there are many ways that God has uh, made it available for us to manifest his spirit. There are many different gifts that he can give us, ways that we can uh, evidence um, his spirit in our lives, and that, um, that there's great diversity in how he works within us uh, through the spirit, but that, that that spirit is what is to unite us. It is to unite us and that our overarching goal should be the love of others, serving one another and pursuing the best gift for the best situation or the best manifestation in the best context. So with that, we will close 1 Corinthians chapter 12.